0: quickly recap uh, what we've been talking about the last two weeks before we look at tonight's stuff. Um, Two weeks ago, we talked about how uh, mankind, that we are all created for relationships because we're created in the image of a relational God. And um, that that both means that we were created to relate to God, but that we were also created to to relate to each other. And that's foundational to our humanity. Then last week, I began to suggest that there's something that has happened to make that that not easy anymore. To make relationships begin to be very hard. And as we mentioned, it, relationships um, are now fraught with insecurity because we are sinful. And by, by our own sheer will, we want to rebel against God and against others and do things that just aren't nice at times. Um, and that's part of sin. That's part of what's happening in relationships. And tonight, though, uh, we're going to go on and keep talking about this issue just one more time. Before we start getting into some, maybe some more practical things, and some of you are saying, oh, finally, i will start talking about something that means something. I do think this is very important. That's why I want to start here. Um, but we're going we're to look at two more ways that sin and the fall has affected our relationships, and then we're going to talk about what God has done to start healing that, and then what that then means for our relationships and how we can move forward. But um, before we read the passage, uh, if you would, I'm going to pray and ask God to come and help us... Uh, to know what is being said from His Word, so let's pray. God, thank You for Your Word. We thank You that um, I don't. I, I thank You that I don't have to stand up here and just spout off my own good ideas, uh, because You know my heart, and You know that would be a train wreck. And so I pray that You would meet us, uh, every one of us. Lord, there are many people here who uh, are very much uh, just here to check it out and don't have any tie to Christianity, don't have any tie to You as a God. Um, but I pray that you would meet those people. And I pray that you would meet those who are here who are just comfortable and think that they are uh, their goodness is keeping them in good relationship with you. I pray that you would come and show them that uh, their goodness will never be enough, that there's something better uh, that's offered in the gospel. And for anyone else who's here, Father, please come and meet us in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In February of this year, I got a, an email from a friend who lives in Nashville. He actually is the guy who uh, is behind a lot of these old hymns. If you'll see some of these hymns, say they're from the 1700s and 1800s. He was the instigator behind the whole movement to, to put these old, old songs to new music. There's a guy named Kevin Twitt who lives in Nashville. And he had sent an email out about his six-year-old daughter named Amelia in Amelia he talks about, she had flu and the strep throat in the strep throat. The. Uh, she had flu and strep throat in the same week, at the same time she had them. And so he just talks about she was a mess. Uh, she, uh, she, she was so sick that she literally didn't get out of bed. She didn't change her pajamas, she didn't take a bath. She didn't do anything. She felt so nasty. And she looked at her daddy at the end of that week. She said, Daddy, I don't feel like a princess anymore. Kevin says, I didn't even know what to say, but my heart was stricken. He says, but I pulled myself together and asked her what she meant. She said, Daddy, I don't feel shiny and clean anymore. I need a bath. Every one of us in this room... Through the way that we live, through the choices we've made, through the things that have happened to us because of the choices others have made, in some way feel much like this little girl. You feel dirty and you need a bath. You feel like that you don't, you may not even be able to make sense of what's happened, but you just don't feel right. And as I began to talk about last week, what I'm going to suggest from Scripture, from the Bible, is that. There is actually a reason for this that is rooted firmly in history. It's that there was a rebellion against God. That Adam and Eve, who were created in God's image, rebelled against Him and wanted to do what they wanted to do, to live in rebellion and autonomy from Him. So what we're going to do now is uh, read the passage, and we're talk about how sin continues to uh, affect our relationships. So if you would, open up the Bibles that you may have in front of you or on your phone. Uh, Turn to about page 3. We're going to read the same passage we read last week and talk about it again. So Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to go ahead and start reading. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. and You shall eat, the plant, you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat breath. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife Garments of skin and clothe them. This is the word of the Lord. Give God thanks for it. So as we look at this passage, and as we consider it's just being read, having just been read, I want us to see that not only does sin lead us into great insecurity, as we talked about last week, and not only does sin lead us into further rebellion against God and others, but that sin also leads us into hiding. It also leads us into hiding. And this is somewhat related to some of the things I've mentioned so far, but... I think it deserves some special time because of the way that it plays out, particularly in our relationships. And look, in verses 8 through 10, we read that at the very sound of God's presence, when God was just walking through the garden, that Adam became afraid. And his fear, his insecurity about what he was and his shame drove him into hiding. They were no longer secure about their nakedness. And so they went and they covered themselves They were scared, and they went into hiding. Let me give you an example of this and how this plays out in the real world. Uh, When Sarah and I had uh, just gotten engaged, don't be thinking that we got naked. We weren't naked. Um, When we had just gotten engaged, uh, we sat down with the pastor for some premarital counseling to start kind of that whole process. And um, we sat down, and he was explaining to us that premarital counseling, uh, of what would happen in premarital counseling. What he was saying was, that during this time we will get to know each other better and we will find out new things about each other and we will probably, probably grow a lot in this time. And so I'm kind of sitting there thinking, it's like, oh yeah. You know, I saw this Chris Rock comedy special. <laughs> I should have known, right? Um, <clears throat> and I start to talk about how, that's really funny when you say this, because Chris Rock talked about how when you're dating, you just let the other person see a little bit of you. And you hide all the things you don't want them to see. So they're kind of seeing this other you, this alternate you. But, you know, that's what you do when you're dating. But then once you get the ring on the finger, and what's really hard about me doing this is I'm wanting to talk like Chris Rock, Chris Rock and I can't do that. <laughs> he's like, once you get the ring on the finger, and he's, um, he said, well, once you get the ring on the finger, that went from bad to worse. Um, once you get that on the finger, then you're like, man, you're stuck with me. And you can start letting it all out. You start letting them know what they're getting when you get married, but they're stuck with you, right? Well, as you can imagine, my new fiance Sarah, who, glad it worked out, um, she and my pastor both were thinking, uh, yeah, we don't like the way that this sounds. Like, what, are, what have you yet to tell me, Brent? Um, what is to be determined in this? Part of it was I didn't know what I was talking about. Um, uh, Part of it was I I just thought I was really funny. But I also really think there was a great part of it uh, which while we were dating and even while we were engaged and sometimes still into marriage, you carry things inside of you that you simply don't want to be seen. You don't want anyone else to see those things because, as I've mentioned, your thought is that if anyone knows me like I know me, then they will never love me if they know what is in the deep recesses of my heart, in those ugly corners, in those ugly and deep and dark places that I just kind of tuck away and selectively spend my whole life trying to keep people from, if anybody gets to see those things, they will turn and run the other way. How do you do that? And what do you do that with? What are the things that you have deemed to be too scary, too ugly, too dirty, that you have locked up in the vault of your heart hoping that they will just atrophy and wither away with time as long as no one comes and visits them and as long as you don't think about them too much, you hope that they'll just be there and they'll die eventually. Maybe it's something you've done online in the, in the safety of your room. Maybe it's just a malicious thought you had towards someone who really made you mad. Maybe toward a parent who for most of your life all they've been is disappointed in you. And you're so mad at them you don't really know what to do. And so you just hold it up. You hold it in. You bottle it up. Maybe it's a homosexual desire. And you're really struggling with what to do with that. It doesn't feel clean but yet you can't get rid of it. Or maybe it's just A sexual fantasy about somebody in a class, or maybe in this room, or maybe at church, or wherever. What is it that you have that you try and hide so that no one will see? Because you think if they see it, they could never love you. You may be thinking, Brent, what's so bad about hiding? I mean, do I have to tell everybody everything? Do I just have to be a complete open book for the world to see? And I want to say that you don't. I'm not here suggesting that you walk out of here and that we have a big powwow out there and just let it all go and just kind of air all of our secrets and dirty laundry and everything like that. I'm not saying that that stuff is all for the world to see. But really, would that be the worst thing that could ever happen to you? That you are actually known for who you are and that your secrets which, which haunt you could actually be known by those around you? Derek Webb, who's an artist, he says, uh, he said, you know, it, it actually wouldn't be so bad if all of our sins and all of our shortcomings were broadcast across the world. Because then we wouldn't have anything to run from. We would finally be able to own, yep. I mean, that's me. I can't really I can't really do anything about it. That's what it is. And we can start in that moment to be healed. We can start in that moment to be changed. But I'm actually talking about not just airing it to everybody. I'm talking about those things which you've decided I can't tell anybody. I'm not saying you have to tell everybody. I'm worried about things that you decide you can't tell anybody. And what happens is that your insecurity about what others think about you and your own self-centered desire to appear better and and so that... And for your life to appear more together than it actually is, that this sort of thing forces you into all sorts of lies and manipulation and hiding. And your life becomes, it's almost like a gymnastics act to try to figure out how do I cover this? or if that person sees me do this, so how do I not do this in front of them? Yet how can I maybe wear this, but oh man, that guy's going to be there and he goes to church, so I can't wear that. Your whole life becomes this mess of trying to cover up who you so desperately don't want people to see that you actually are. And as much as you don't want people to see these things, and as exhausting as it is to think about people seeing these things, And as exhausting as it is to cover them up, you think that this is actually easier and better than being found out. And that's why you do it. You think that this is easier than actually letting it out. And so you you stay in your own mind, you stay in your own heart, you stay in in, in in your own vault of your life and you don't let anybody in. And you've resigned to living in a way where managing and controlling what others think about you is normal. Some of you just don't know any other way. And I'm not, I'm thrown in with you. Some of us simply don't know what it would be like to not live our lives controlling what other people think about us and trying to manage people instead of loving people, trying to put off a certain persona or a certain lifestyle instead of letting others come in. And you figured out. That if you let them see just enough of your socially acceptable sins or weaknesses, some of those things that you can actually share at the end of a Bible study or maybe share with a close friend, you figured out that if you can share just enough of those things to where they think you're being vulnerable and honest and real, then you're good. And you can stay behind the facade of emptiness and in this vault that you've created. And you many of you have figured out how to do that to a t- some of you had told me about how you do that. I can tell you about how I did that. And how I still do that. Because we don't want people to see who we are. One time over lunch, a friend asked me, a friend here in town asked me three times in a row. He said, How are you? Oh man, I'm great. You know, things have been good, busy, of course, that's what we all say. I've been busy, man, just running around doing all this. Like, cool. How are you? It's like, oh, okay. Oh, uh, golly. I think I'm doing all right. You know, you know, I did do this the other day. That wasn't very fun. He asked me a third time. He said, "How are you?" Like, Gee, man, peeling the layers on me, just unraveling my life right here over lunch table. <sighs> some of you need, some of you need that to happen to you. And I would suggest that you need to go do that with your friends. You need to keep pressing the question until people will actually start to let you in on what's actually happening. And it may be as easy as just repeating the question, How are you? How are you? How are you? Maybe your voice can get lower and lower. (laughs) But we don't want to do this naturally. None of us do. And so we need to help each other. We need to come around in relationship with each other and give each other a safe place to come out and begin to be known. Look, because we weren't made to self-protect, We weren't made to manage other people. We weren't made to run away from each other in relationships. We weren't made to hide. We're made to be known. We were made to be known deeply, closely, intimately. Sex, when you get together and get naked, is a physical picture of what should be happening on all other levels at that point in the relationship. And I suggest, and I will in the, in the coming weeks, that there's only one place where that can fully and ultimately and safely happen. So if you think about it, and if you, and if you think, yeah, Brent, that sounds pretty good, it would be really good to be known, then part of you in your heart start to kind of get excited because you kind of start to be freed up a little bit. And if you'll take that thought and let it go one step further, maybe into start dreaming, to where you could say, what would it be like to be known and to be loved? What would it be like to be known and to be loved? And the manipulative game that we naturally play by hiding is why some of you actually hate Christianity. It's why some of you do not like the church. You don't like when a group of religious people get together. Because what you think happens is that the more, uh, the more religious the group is, or the more put together the people who are there seem, the more you, as part of that group, come in and think that you have to be put together. And the more together you think you have to appear so that you won't stand out. And so you start hiding more and more. And you start uh, doing all sorts of things, manipulating and lying, so that others won't really get to know you. And the more religious you think you need to appear, the more you have to work to hide what's actually inside of you. And the more you have to hide what's actually inside of you, the more you will begin to resent God. The more you will begin to resent others, the church, and anything of this kind. Because if one thing is true that you know of yourself, it is that you are not that good. It's a sad reality then that the church is like this. So then, whose problem is it? is it your problem or is it the church's problem for creating this kind of ugly mess yes in the words of mark zuckerberg it's complicated right because i don't want you to think that it's only your sin and your desire to self protect that makes this that makes this thing hard I, that wouldn't be fair to you because what the church is and what a group like ruf is we're not the church we're a branch of the church an arm of the church serving on this campus What we are is a bunch of people, ready or not, who are just like you and who we ourselves want to hide. And so when we get together, we just really like put it on steroids and we want to hide and we want to be pretty and we want to put together, Oh, I'm great. Oh, nothing ever bothers me. You see? Big smiley face. We're doing just fine. Relationships are great. Thanks for asking. And the not so pretty reality is the church has disappointed many of you. Religion has disappointed many of you. Christian parents or Christian friends have let you down. And what you really want is just a place, a person, somewhere where you can be known and loved. One thing you must understand if you're ever going to be both known and loved is that you have to stop blaming others for what's wrong with you. And this is the last thing... Uh, I'm going to talk about in terms of the effects of sin is that we blame shift. We don't like to say, yeah, I've done it. It's actually my fault. We see this in the passage. If you look down beginning in verse 11, God says, Who told you that you were naked? He's talking to Adam. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? Right, you can just see the wheels falling off. And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And if this scene weren't so sad and true, it would actually be really, really funny. It would be really funny to see in a movie. I mean, we see it all the time. Some of us know this all too well. Sorry. Um, but we have to know that in the midst of that, God doesn't run away. He doesn't see their sin, and He doesn't turn and go the other way. It's like, Adam, you are so stupid. Eve, you are so stupid. I can't believe you did this. No, He goes right into the middle of it. And he continues to move toward them and to press into them and to draw out a confession. And he looks at Adam and says, Adam, why are you wearing these leaves? You look silly. Right? And what Adam says is, God, it's just my fault. I'm so sorry. No, that's not what Adam says. He starts to blame. He starts by blaming God, which is really pretty scary. It's kind of a daring move. God, it's your fault. This woman you gave me. Right? The woman you gave me, she made me do it. A.K.A. God, if you wouldn't have made her so stinking hot and naked and all these things, and she's over there saying, hey, Adam, come here, come eat the fruit. God, if you wouldn't have done that, then we wouldn't be in this mess to begin with. It's your fault, God. The woman you gave to be with me, she tempted me and I ate, but it's your fault. And the woman's sitting there looking around after Adam's just thrown her under the bus, and she's thinking like, there's really... Not a lot of other people to blame this on. So she blames the serpent, who of course was very crafty and cunning, and who was at the root of all this. But she looks and blames the serpent. She said, the serpent did me. He deceived me. It's his fault. And I ate. A friend uh, of mine from seminary told me the story recently where he said um, he's got a neighbor who's found out that he's a pastor, which if... Uh, as a pastor, you find out that people just want to start telling you everything, which is both wonderful and sometimes very funny. And uh, his neighbor came over to his house a couple days ago and said, um, said, Dave, I had to kick her out of the house. And he had been he had, had a live-in girlfriend. And um, Dave said, what happened? He said, well, we got, a fu- we got in a verbal fight, a huge fight at the bar a few nights ago, and I just decided I'd had enough, and so I kicked her out. And Dave, as the conversation went, uh, Dave said the guy began to... To kind of talk about how he actually did feel bad that he had been sleeping with this girlfriend and had her move in, or, or that she moved in. And they've been doing this for a few years, and he kind of did feel bad that he really had never made a commitment to her. But at the end of it, he said, You know, it's her fault for moving in with me. It's her fault for picking up all of her stuff, coming to my house, uh, doing all this. It's her fault. And the guy just totally abandoned any sort of of blame that was part of that, that was his. He totally blame shifted when the heat came. And what I want to say, and I said it last week and I'll say it again, that if you are in your relationships for your own personal happiness, for your own personal gain only, then you cannot be helped when it comes to this stuff. You simply can't be helped. Because until you realize that you are the biggest problem in your relationship, it's not the person you're with, it's not the other thing. And to hear me say that, I know that there are terrible things that happen in relationships. So don't hear me say that nothing bad happens uh, from the hand of someone else. What I'm trying to say is that your own sin, until you can finally own that, you'll continue to blame shift. You'll continue to look at other places where you can put that. You can't be helped. So who can be helped? Well, it's anyone who's ready to stop blaming others. That may seem obvious. For some of you, though, it's kind of complicated, because you may have to confess that you're, you may have to confess your sin against God, and that has meant that you have tried and you've actually really done most things right. And in relationships, you may not have ever gone too far, or you may never have even had a relationship. You may have kept all your clothes on. You may have never done any of the things that you know that you shouldn't do or that your parents told you you shouldn't do. And you need help because you have to come to God and confess and say, God, my efforts to do this have made me want you to just give me everything I deserve. Have made me want to look at you and say, God, I've done everything right. Look at me. I haven't gotten naked. I haven't slept around. I haven't done this. And you deserve, I deserve a husband. I deserve a wife. Why are you not giving me that? And some of you are very angry at God because He hasn't done that. And your relationships in your life don't look the way you think they should look. And you have to look at God and say, That is selfish, God. And I am sorry. Please forgive me. And then there are others of you who it's just really not that hard because you can look at your life, you can look at the things you're doing right now or the things you've done, and you can say, yeah, it's, it's not pretty, Brent. It's really not pretty. Um, I've slept with about 40 people. I don't even know all their names. I, I can't stop. Or some of you are saying, I, it's just been one, but we're still doing it, and I don't know what to do. I don't know how to stop these things. I don't know how to not do what seems so obvious for us to do. But if you're ready to say, it's my fault, then according to Scripture, you're ready to be helped. Because God comes to those, and the Gospel comes to those, who will finally stop blaming others and say, it's my fault. But this is scary. It's scary to do with other people, because we begin to be known, and that's really scary. But it's really scary to do with God. And this is why... Because when we admit or confess our sin to God, what we're saying is that I know, God, I know that I deserve death. Because God told Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, we didn't read, but he told Adam and Eve that if you sin, if you eat of this one fruit, you will surely die. In the Hebrew, it's emphatic. He says you will die, die. You will surely die. And so for us then, and Paul repeats it in the New Testament and says, for the wages of sin is death. And so if you will look at God and say, God, I have sinned, what you're saying is, I deserve to die. I deserve for you to strike me down and kill me for what what I've done. And friends, that's really scary. That is really scary. It's frightening. But that's not the way it unfolds in the Bible. That's not the way this story goes. The late John Stott, who, who just passed away a few weeks ago, was a great British minister for decades. And he said this in his book, The Cross of Christ. He said, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. What we did in the fall, what Adam and Eve did as our representatives, is that they wanted to be like God, and so they jumped up and substituted themselves. And what God has said is if you're ever going to be saved, I'm going to have to come and substitute myself for you. The Christian message doesn't ask you to try and be good. In fact, it says that you will never understand why Jesus had to die if you think you are good. If you just think you can kind of clean up and maybe do a little spot cleaning on your life, then you'll never understand this. You'll never understand why Jesus had to hang on a cross bloody if you just kind of think you need a little help, a little bit of cleaning, but if you understand that we are sinful at our core and that we rebel against God at our core, then this will begin to make sense. And at RUF, I want to tell you that we take the problem of sin very seriously because the Bible takes it very seriously. And God took it very seriously. I'm not trying to lead you to a place where you only just... To bemoan your life and to where you hate yourself. I'm trying to lead you to the place where you can be honest and say something needs to be done. Friends, God takes sin so seriously that He enters the picture again. And He takes the sin on Himself, the substitution. He takes the sin on Himself and He, him, he sends His Son Jesus to die for you. In your place. So that you don't have to die. Finally. So that you don't have to die. You see the promise in Genesis 3.15. Is that the offspring of the serpent. Would receive the fatal blow. That Satan would one day be fully crushed. He would be bruised or crushed in his head. But that he would strike the heel of woman and our, hit her offspring would, would limp through life because we are affected by sin and we limp along, sometimes trudgingly slow. But, friends, sin and evil would one day die because God promised it here to Adam and Eve that the seed of a woman one day would come and do away with death and evil forever. That promised seed is the promise of the gospel, it's the promised Messiah, it's Jesus himself. So Jesus hangs on a cross and dies, but He doesn't stay dead. He comes back to life. God raises Him from the dead and He parades around. and Hundreds of people see Him to show that sin did not win. Evil, and the evil that's in your heart and the evil that's in your relationships does not finally win. Jesus is resurrected to show that sin does not have that power. And then He goes back to the Father, back to that relationship. And they could have stayed up there forever and been perfectly happy. And we could have been left here on our own to try and move toward God. But God knows us too well. He knows that we won't move toward Him on our own. And so what does He do? He sends the third member of the Trinity. He sends the Holy Spirit to come and to open our hearts. And to come and allow us to say, you know what, I am sinful. It's my fault. But Jesus took the payment for me. The Holy Spirit now does this in our world. He's done it in some of your lives and He's doing it in some of your lives right now. That the gospel is becoming good news for you. Because you see that you don't have to work for it. You simply have to believe it. And friends, when this becomes your story. When you realize that you can both be fully known and fully loved by what God has done in Christ. Then you begin to be able to look at each other. In your relationships. And not expect those people to carry the burden Of fully knowing you and fully loving you. Because they simply can't. They are still broken. They can't do what only God can do. And you can stop looking to your boyfriends and your girlfriends. Your family or your sexual encounters. To give you this ultimate fulfillment. You can know that that only comes in God. Or with God. And then you can move toward others. You can move toward loving them. And giving them the freedom to open up. You can move toward them and serving them instead of just using them. Because friends, that's what you were created in God's image to do. Is to love others. To serve them. And relationships become beautiful when you see this happen. Some of you know this. You've had parents model this for you. You've had friends. You've even had boyfriends or girlfriends model this for you. And it's absolutely wonderful. I'm going to close with this story. This last summer, Sarah and I uh, and our family, we had been in Louisiana where she's from for a family wedding. And we we don't get to go down there often. And so we decided to go down and stay for two weeks, uh, a week before the wedding and a week after the wedding. And it was crazy before the weddings; people were running around, so it wasn't a lot of good family time. But after the wedding, it started to calm down a little bit. and So we began to hang out uh, with family and that kind of stuff, and it was great. Well, the Tuesday after, the wedding was on Saturday. Tuesday after, I get a phone call from a really good friend here in Tulsa, a guy I grew up with. And he said, Brent, I want you to come and play in the member guest uh, at, at Cedar Ridge with me, which is a really nice country club here in Tulsa. I used to be, uh, I, I, I love to play golf. I used to be a good golfer, but I don't get to play that much anymore. And so the thought of getting to play in this tournament was awesome. I was so excited. But I told him, I said, you know, I'm going to have to go talk to Sarah about it. So I went and talked to Sarah and I mentioned it. And during the course of that conversation, both, both of our emotions got pretty elevated. And um, you might have called it a discussion of sorts. Um, and we decided we just needed to take a few hours and think about it and to pray about it and figure out what we should do. And so in that couple, in that three hours, I did what any good Christian, loving Christian husband would do. I went off and prayed and uh, sought how best to, to serve Sarah That's not true. Um, What I did was I started building my case. And I even called a pastor friend and kind of gave him my side of the story so that he could get behind me. He said, yeah, you're right. You're right. In those three hours, I had basically constructed a bulletproof case of why we could leave the next day to drive 15 hours home all through the day with two kids and be there so that I could tee off at 8 a.m. Thursday morning. And I was ready to go obliterate anything Sarah said to me. That's right, I'm a pastor. It's really embarrassing. Um, And I walked into the kitchen at her parents' house, ready to decimate her. And she turned around with tears in her eyes. And before I could say anything, she looked at me and said, Brent, we're going to go home tomorrow. I want you to play in that golf tournament. I want you to get to go and do that. And I looked at her and said, Sarah, but you want to be here with your family. Why would you do that? And she looked at me and said, Brent, because I love you. I love you. I want good things for you. I want you to enjoy these kind of things. And friends when you see that in other people, when you see that relationships can be a place where you see love, where you experience love, where you feel the very gospel itself, then you begin to look at what God has done and say, I've got to have that. Because what I'm doing here on earth right now with my relationships isn't working. But that sounds pretty good. Friends, that's an invitation to come to God through what Jesus has done just because He loved you. Will you come to Him?